This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football before they happen. I'm Johnny McFarlane and I'm filling in for Henry McRae, who's off on a well-deserved break. With me today are regulars Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. We bring news of the Ukraine-based midfielder that's getting Josie and Pep tapping their feet to a samba beat. We talk to Brighton fullback Liam Rossinier about VAR, the Van Dyke deal and a player's perspective the window. And with Liverpool having already done business in Catalonia this season, we ask, is there more to come? And in the opposite direction. Moving straight on into the biggest news, Duncan, you have a story about Manchester United and their pursuit of a Ukraine-based Brazilian midfielder. Tell us more. Yes, the news is that uh, Mourinho has uh, shifted his transfer priorities for this window and is now asking the club to concentrate on getting a midfielder possible um, in January. Um, reason for this is that he feels that um, left-back is very difficult to get the player he wants, Alexandro, um, because of the price Juventus are asking for. And uh, he feels that in the recent games where Paul Pogba has played further forward, which is something we, we talked about in the, in the podcast last week, it, uh, the midfield has been more effective and, and United have been a more creative unit. So he wants to get a player in who can play alongside Matic, um, allowing a three-man central midfield with Pogba closer to the attack. And he's been asking scouts to uh, find a guy who fits that role. And at present... The top um, figure on the list is Fred from Shakhtar Donetsk. Um, he's a Brazilian international. can basically play any of those positions in midfield. can play as a number six. Um, the Matic role could play a number eight, box to box, or even play as, as, the, as the, further, the most further forward, even as a 10 in, the, in a midfield system. But um, he is keen to move uh, to Europe as essentially all Brazilians who end up uh, taking their first move out of Brazil to Eastern European football are. And um, a deal could probably be done if Shakhtar's conditions are met. The problem for United is there's a lot of competing interest in uh, Fred, um, including from <laughs> the most difficult club of, of all for them, from Manchester City. So That, 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 is, the, that is the problem, Duncan. Um, I agree with you. I, I, I think Manchester City have registered interest in Fred in the last window. Uh, Shakhtar at that point weren't willing to sell I think they are willing to cash in I think we know from experience that Shakhtar do not sell cheap they have quite astute the transfer market they buy uh, players when they're younger uh, I believe um, Fred was bought from Internacional is that right Duncan? Internacional yeah in Brazil. yeah Internacional I... sorry sorry yeah and, uh, and now for about £15 million and they're looking at upwards of, of 35 uh, to £40 million minimum now now uh, as we've reported uh, on the transfer window previously, 
Josie has around ninety million pounds to spend in this window, so that would represent uh, half, certainly in terms of fee, um, of of that amount. And um, as we know, City's uh, pockets are bottomless, so uh, they could easily bid United if they wanted to. I think that in this particular window, City's need for a central midfielder is less great than United's, and it would mean uh, taking focus away from other parts of the City team where they need to strengthen, i.e. the injury to Gabriel Jesus means they need backup for Sergio Aguero up front um, and also they need a left-back uh, with Benjamin Mendy still in rehabilitation from his ACL. So uh, I'd say on paper United are probably favourites to sign Fred. Um, however, with respect to other City rivals, literally, uh, hanging over, then they may find it difficult, especially, of course, as City already have uh, a Brazilian entourage uh, in the squad who would make it a lot easier for, for Fred to, to fit in there. You know, you're not quite surprised that Marino would be looking for a midfielder when he's got the perfect answer sitting there in Zlatan Ibrahimovic. <laughs> well, you know my thoughts on this, story. <laughs> uh, you know, the man's not, not starting. Uh, there's a place in the team that's there waiting for him to fill. And uh, having spoken to the big man last weekend, he was gutted not to be starting central midfield again. Um and certainly, you know, uh, if Fred doesn't work out, then Mourinho definitely has that option. Is it a difficult one for Mourinho, Duncan, when you're going for a, a player against Manchester City because of the the way they're playing at the moment and the way people hold Guardiola within the game, that you're almost at a disadvantage, even if you're at a massive club like Manchester United? I th- look, I think there's a disadvantage because um, Guardiola has an appeal. And in fact... Uh, Fred was asked about uh, Manchester City in an interview in Brazil a few days ago and specifically mentioned Guardiola and said he, he hoped he would call him. And as Ian mentions, his, his international teammates, Gabriel Jesus and Fernandinho, are part of that squad. So you've got that element of, of being able to use them to work on a player you want to come to a club. I think the biggest problem is, is, a, is a pure financial one. I mean, we've heard time and time again um, in this sort of debate about where Guardiola and Mourinho are, where Manchester City and Man United are. You, you, you don't have to search hard to see people saying they've essentially spent the same money. They, they started from the same base. It's just not true. Um, as, as we mentioned before, you've got a CIES study of the, of the transfer fees committed by the two clubs. Manchester City have spent 34% more in the two years uh, that the two managers have been at the club. And Anyone who's dealing in the current transfer market will tell you if Manchester City are up against you and they want to bid for a player, they will outbid you on price and they will outbid, more importantly, on salary. So that is kind of central to the the complaints that Mourinho has started to make publicly about not having had enough invested in his team and that he doesn't, he can't go head to head with Manchester City for a player. And and this could be a test case. the thing is, from talking to the people involved in this, 100% convinced that Fred's the right answer to the problem. And, and again, this, this goes back to budget. In an ideal world, with um, being able to throw as much money as, as is realistically possible at the position, he'd probably go for someone like Saul Nuguez at Atletico Madrid, who he's admired for a long time. But Saul has uh, signed a new contract in the summer, is on a 150 million release clause. So even if you were to 
be able to negotiate that down with Atletico to something like 100. It's probably way outside the budget uh, Mourinho's realistically looking at, knowing that he has to get at least one midfielder in, probably two, because you're looking at Carrick retiring in the summer. You might lose Fellaini as well. Um, he has to get a left back in. He wants Alexandro, who's going to probably going to cost 60 million euros minimum, and that that would be waiting until the summer and hoping that someone like City don't go for him, and at least one winger, possibly two. <coughs> you're looking at adding a, another place up uh, Ian's great midfield top, Slatan Ibrahimovic. So um, there's there's still a lot of money to be spent on that squad to get it right, um, and. They, and then, and in, in contrast to City, where essentially City are going, we want this player, we will pay what's required to get this player. Manchester United are in a position where each deal has to be proposed by Mourinho. He does have control over the players that come in, but then the board has to sign off on the financial terms and see whether it suits them. When you compete with Manchester City, both in the transfer market and on the field of play, um, and you're Manchester United, it does complicate things. I think Mourinho's been shrewd here. Um, rather than... Uh, spent a hell of a lot of money on a defender and rather than um, try to uh, increase his creative options by moving um, Paul Pogba further forward we know his relationship in terms of um, assists with Romelu Lukaku is excellent and uh, so to get those two players playing closer together on the pitch will mean more goals for Manchester United more creativity, more creative chances and I think Marcus Rashford actually Martial will also benefit from that um, and Fred can chip in with goals as well. Um, now, in terms of uh, competition from City in the transfer market, obviously the Alexis Sanchez saga continues to rumble on. Um, I'm fairly certain, uh, uh, and I think most people believe that Sanchez will join Manchester City in this window. And in doing so, obviously solves the problem of Gabriel Jesus' injury because he has played as a striker, as a false nine, if you like, uh, for Arsenal and for Barcelona. Um, in his career and does get a lot of goals and a lot of assists. So uh, with City probably focusing their attention on Sanchez, not so much on Fred, I'd say that United are ahead of the game in terms of recruiting Fred, which takes us, of course, back to Arsenal because Wenger will only sanction a Sanchez move if they get uh, a player in return who can play in that position. And of course, um, what we can reveal is that Arsenal representatives have travelled to Bordeaux today to discuss the transfer of Brazilian winger Malcolm to uh, Arsenal in this window, who would be not exactly a direct like-for-like replacement for Sanchez, but he would give them uh, more creativity uh, in terms of, again, chances created, pace as well, which has proven probably this season, more than any other I can uh, recall, to be uh, one of the most effective ways of um, scoring goals in the Premier League. Uh, you think about Leroy Sané, Ryan Sterling in particular at Manchester City getting in behind defences with their electric pace. That's something which uh, Malcolm will bring to an Arsenal team which, which is lacking that. And of course, on the other hand, you, you've also got the prospect of Theo Walcott leaving on loan to either Everton or Southampton. So Malcolm again f- uh, fills a gap created uh, by that. And Alex Awobi, uh, not Alex Awobi, sorry, um, Francisco Clan is moving to Valencia as well. So we're getting a lot of movement already. You know, we're, we're only um, uh, in the first third of this window and already players have been signed and players are moving. The merry has started early because in the January window, we're more used to deals being done at the end. But 
So, um, Duncan, I just wanted to ask you, your opinion, you're very good with Brazilian football, your opinion on Malcolm, someone who Jose Mourinho was also looking at when he was thinking more about creative player uh, earlier in this window. Yeah, look, at it, I think you made a good point about the the, comp- the market moving early and the degree of spending is huge. I, mean, I wrote a piece um, at the weekend talking about how Liverpool, with the Coutinho uh, and the Van Dijk deal combined, the, the, the money that's gone on those two deals is the equivalent of all the money spent by the, the entirety of the, tra- of the Premier League in the, on transfer fees in the last January window, um, which was um, close to being the record spend in all transfer windows. So I think this one's going to destroy any um, records that the Premier League set before. And it, it's partly because of that competition, partly because the clubs have the money, but also because of the competition for players like Malcolm. So, yes, he is on high on Manchester United's recruitment list for a winger. Um, and is a player that Mourinho likes and has been advised would... It's exactly the kind of category of player you could bring in who is a top young talent who's capable of developing into <coughs> an absolute guaranteed starter and maybe being one of the, the leading players in European football in a couple of seasons' time. And that, that's that's a, a category of player he's, he's been looking to recruit. And if you look at most of his recruitment at Manchester United, it's been of younger age players with, with a long-term future in mind. But it becomes complicated because there's not many of these guys available and a number of Premier League clubs with money are chasing them as well as as as, as the stronger clubs in Spain and France. Um, you can broaden it out with Arsenal and say, who's, the, who's another guy that they, they're looking at as a replacement for Sanchez? It's the one that they agreed a fee with Monaco for in, in the summer window of uh, 95 million euros, and that's Thomas Lamar. Thomas Lamar, also wanted by Manchester United, also on Mourinho's recruitment list for a winger, probably too expensive for them for the reasons I've just outlined. Liverpool. Liverpool tried to, to get him in the summer and, and had an agreement with the player to come, and then Arsenal gazumped him by offering more money, so the player didn't move. Now the boot's probably on the other foot in that, in that deal, in that Lamar still want, has still told Liverpool he will go, if they can get a deal, but Liverpool have to now uh, come to an agreement on price with Monaco and are holding off on that deal because Monaco, intelligently enough, realised there are at least three of the top English clubs wanting the player um, and they can wait. They can do the deal now or they can wait to the summer and they're, they're looking at, at, you know, at least 95 million euros as a transfer fee, potentially more for, uh, I think, a 22-year-old player with, with a couple of seasons Champions League experience. So you know, just, just from that, you get a sense of where the market is going and the, and the forces driving the market higher and higher. Guys, just to touch on Arsenal for a moment, We've got Alexis Sanchez, who's a world-class, world-renowned player, and they're talking about replacing him with a guy from Bordeaux. Now, I'm sure he's an excellent player, but what does this say about the way, the direction that Arsenal are moving in in terms of their overall transfer policy? Because the, the fans are going to be hearing this and going, this is not a like-for-like replacement. Well, it's, it's not, Johnny, but like-for-like replacements in terms of world-class players are very hard to come by, <clears throat> and they're even more sparse in the January window because as we know playing Champions League football etc is very important to these players after Christmas uh, so if they're moving to a club uh, in Arsenal's case of course they're playing Europa League not Champions League 
they see that's a step down and it may be damaged their uh, aspirations to make the national team for next summer's World Cup in Russia. So we've got to have that kind of perspective, especially in this window with the World Cup summer coming up. Um, I'd say that in terms of Arsenal's um, uh, policy, I think I think they've needed to to change it slightly because clearly they're not succeeding in winning major trophies. Um, Malcolm's 20 years old. He's, he's got a massive amount of, uh, of potential. I know that Wenger has um, made mistakes in terms of blooding young players and thinking they're going to be good enough to play in the Premier League and Champions League in the past, um, but not necessarily spent a lot of money on that player. So I think Malcolm will cost between 30 and £40 million pounds from Bordeaux. Um, that's partly the market price pushing that up. But it's also the case that he's very talented and is in high demand. So I, I don't have any problem um, with Arsenal looking at this. I and mean, we, we know also they're looking at Julian Draxler, who's 23, currently at Paris Saint-Germain, but not getting regular game time. So I think it's time for Arsenal to look at, um, let's just say, players with, yes, with potential, but with current first-team experience, rather than bringing players up through their own academy who maybe they've recruited age 16 or 17, um, which they have had a habit of doing and then blooding them uh, aged 18, 19, 20 in the, in the first team. And the just to find they're not good enough. Uh, this is probably, a, there is a little bit of a change in the policy. We will, they will pay higher money. Uh, as I said, replacing Sanchez is always going to be difficult. Um, and I think in the same CIES report that, that Duncan mentioned, and certainly in a, in a similar report, uh, which was published last week, Arsenal are thought to be one of the strongest uh, financial clubs in world football currently, and in terms of cash and uh, their assets. And so could actually spend the kind of money that, potentially Barcelona spent on Philippe Coutinho. Unfortunately, Arsenal right now are not a team that a lot of world-class players want to go to because they don't see them as type contenders, Champions League contenders. So recruiting younger players with potential who, uh, as I said, have experience in game time uh, under their belts, uh, who will improve their team, not just the squad, is the right way forward for Arsenal right now. Um, of course, what Arsenal supporters think is is something different probably because I think they're sick of having no success and, and want success tomorrow, which is understandable when you haven't won the title for as long as they have. I think, I think you've got to put it in perspective and say, what, where was Alexis Sanchez when Arsenal signed him? And give Arsenal credit for bringing a player whose, whose status in the game had declined because he, had, he, was, he basically failed at Barcelona. He wasn't able to fit into their system, wasn't able to learn the way to play with those players and didn't achieve what he was expected to achieve. So Arsenal got him at a reasonable price when his star was not high in the European game and, and have uh, given him a platform and developed him into a player where he's regarded as one of the best players in the Premier League. So yes, the supporters could be upset and saying we're losing a world-class player um, and we're not replacing like with like, but Arsenal haven't been in that position for a long time. Um, you know, you're talking over a decade before, it, it, perhaps to go back and say, do they recruit world-class players? Probably they never did, actually, because like the world-class players they recruited were young ones coming up, which is what they're doing with Malcolm. You know, that's Malcolm is kind of in the position that Alexis Sanchez was when he moved to Barcelona. If you recall then, Alexis Sanchez was targeted by the top Premier League clubs. There was an auction for him that Barcelona won. Um, and uh, Malcolm is kind of that slot of a guy who is young, who is scoring and creating goals in um, a less prominent league, is now attracting um, 
bids from a number of the top teams uh, with the, the, the view that he can turn into um, one of the better players. Um, you know, and a parallel again to Sanchez is possibly what's happening with Manchester United and Lucas Moura. So one of the reasons United might not do Malcolm in this window is that they've been offered the opportunity to take Lucas Moura, who again was one of those players who was chased by um, all the top teams, was very close to joining Manchester United when Ferguson was there, ended up at PSG, is now essentially sur surplus to requirements because PSG have bought the players we know they've bought, um, need to get them off, off their books. Um, and United, because Mourinho likes... Um, Mora as a player, always has done, uh, looked at signing him at Real Madrid, is thinking, here's a guy I can get potentially on loan with an option to buy, um, use for the, the next six months of the season, see if he beds into, into the team, see if he solves that winger problem for me, and then make a decision in the, in the summer as to, as to where we go to next. Okay, perhaps I've been radicalised by watching too much Arsenal fan TV. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, moving on to Liverpool, uh, we re revealed last week on the Transfer Window podcast, Duncan, you were very strong that Coutinho would be on his way, and so it proved. But we believe that Liverpool are actually interested in a Barcelona player coming in the opposite direction. That's right, Johnny. Um, a very, very talented player who has very much lost his way at Barcelona, Arda Turan. Um, signed for Atletico Madrid in 2015. Uh did, couldn't make an appearance because I think his registration was delayed at the time, or he was. In, I, I think that was the case um, until the January of that uh, of 2016. But um, has failed to to make the grade in a, a, a very competitive Barcelona squad. And um, Barcelona, subsequent to the signing, continued for 146 million pounds that Duncan uh, rightly flagged up uh, on last week's podcast. Um, are looking to balance the books. They have to. They've they've invested heavily since the departure of Neymar and Usman Dembele, uh, and now Felipe Coutinho as well. And uh, Arda Turan is supposed to requirements. And I think this is a very good fit, fit for Liverpool, actually, because this is a guy... Let, I mean, let's remember, Coutinho kind of played in the Fab Four as they suddenly become downgraded to the tr tremendous three. Um, but Turan actually is a, a player who plays central midfield, can dominate central midfield, can run a game, has the um, ability to do that. Uh, and I think with the current midfielders, central midfielders that Liverpool have at their disposal in uh, Gigi Van Aldum and Jordan Henderson, um, it, Mel, James Milner, if you, if you count them there, they've always been playing at left back. They don't have the kind of dominant force. Emery Chan, sorry, I should mention as well. But of course, Chan, we firmly believe, will not be at the club uh, next season and will join Juventus on a, on a freedom of contract next summer. And Turan absolutely could fit right into that midfield slot. Uh, he's more creative than Chan and Henderson, probably more creative than both of them put together. Uh, he's much more uh, football intelligent, in my view, as well. Uh, he rarely wastes a pass. His problem is that he hasn't got much game time, so he will need to be match sharp as opposed to fit um, if he does join. But as I said, I think um, it's something which uh, I think would be very beneficial to Liverpool uh, because Coutinho, not necessarily, um, although he played in attacking midfield for Liverpool, I think he was this season certainly dropping back into central midfield to be the creative um, focal, focal point. And Turan could certainly do that. 
which would, of course, mean that um, Firmino, Salah and Mane can get on with scoring the goals up front. Uh, and I think it's also interesting that we see a club like Barcelona, who normally have been fiscally prudent in transfers, uh, having to balance the books and, and get rid of, of players. And indeed, I think there's more players at Barcelona, Duncan, who, who could be on their way out even in this window. Yeah, well, look, Barcelona have uh, incurred a, an immense amount of spending in the last six months with the, the Dembele deal at initial £105 million, the Coutinho deal, which will go up to or get close to €160 million. Euros. I don't think all of the, the, um, the supposed guaranteed variables will be triggered because it seems some of them are dependent on actually winning the Champions League, but the majority of them will come to Liverpool unless the player gets um, seriously injured. And then the, the, the real sort of punch in the guts for Barcelona was the Lionel Messi deal where they had to throw in 100 million euros of signing on fee on top of the 35 million net salary, which is the highest salary ever they gave him to renew um, on, a, on a four-year contract, which he's already done half a year of. Um, so that's, that's 400 million, over 400 million in signing on fees um, for Messi and two transfer fees. Um, in the space of six months. And you know, there's a lot of people in Barcelona, they know that this was in many ways motivated by the board being under severe pressure um, because of the loss of Neymar, the enforced loss of Neymar, and, and because they'd allowed um, Messi's contract to run down, which is something we, we discussed right at the start of the, of the Transfer Window podcast. So they, they, the board are kind of fighting for their political survival by doing things like this. But there's... Um, there's big question marks over how it all gets funded um, down the line because the financial commitments have taken on are bigger than, than that club's ever had by a huge margin. So moving players like Arda Turan out makes sense. And yeah, he was, I think Turan, it was actually, a, they, they signed him when they had their transfer window banned. So That's it's, what it was, Duncan. Yes, sorry. Yeah. He couldn't play, he couldn't play for the first six months. Yeah. Um, that strikes me as a very, if, if Liverpool can make that deal happen, it strikes me as a very intelligent move because they're getting a player who, as you say, is creative and good going forward, but was an integral integral part of the sort of the best of the Atletico Madrid teams, um, where you, we know that you you don't get to play any position there without having defensive awareness and, and being able to to contribute to the whole. And that that for me has been one of Liverpool's great weaknesses this season, in that their midfield can be good going forward, lazy in terms of tracking back and uh, pressing de- pressing opponents in, in certain situations. The Manchester City game where they, they got destroyed 5-0, um, great example of that. You know, I know Kevin De Bruyne uh, was speaking to friends after that match and saying, I wish I could play Liverpool ever, every week because I've never had that much space in the midfield before in the Premier League. Um, a guy like Turan will help solve that problem. Um, and and it, again, it looks like Liverpool are, are are being strategic and moving towards solving some of the obvious problems they have in their squad and and, and going in the right direction. Um, and uh, they they do have to do without Coutinho, and that and that's a big risk they've, they've taken on. But um, FSG are supporting their man, and uh, we see how much extra support they give them through the rest of this window and into the summer. We did discuss last week um, on the back of the Coutinho move, which uh, Duncan was um, pushing uh, that was going to happen. I think uh, we did talk about the cost of Naby Keita being brought to Liverpool uh, six months early, i.e. in this window, and not as agreed 
in July, I do believe that a, 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 an agreement is close to being reached on that one and Liverpool will have to pay in the region of £12 million extra to RB Leipzig uh, in order to uh, progress Keita's um, registration in this window, which again, why not? An extra £12 million when you've just, uh, you know, you've taken a, a profit of around £130 million on Philippe Coutinho from the, what you paid internationally for him, uh, even with the Van Dijk uh, deal put in there as well. I think Liverpool are moving up in the world. I think they, I think they, you know, they're genuinely going into that uh, super club, uh, rarefied atmosphere of a, a, a football club who are willing to spend tens of millions of pounds on on one deal and then on another deal after that. And you know, I, I think we've got to give credit to FSG and indeed to the fact they're back in Jurgen Klopp's judgment when you know he's not returned any trophies for his tenure so far. But clearly, there is uh, some kind of um, agreement stroke confidence in, in Klopp's management that they will give him this amount of spending power. Now, let's think about this. If Liverpool, who are currently playing quite well, and of course they do face League Leaders Manchester City this Sunday, if they were to secure Van Dijk, Turan and Keita in the January window, that for me that would probably be the most outstanding January window of any Premier League club in recent history. Next on yeah, the like- Anfield wrap... <laughs> Let's <laughs> <laughs> just say on Keita, um, the that that's becoming a very expensive deal. You know that they paid the release clause fifty five million euros plus a premium on top to be allowed to exercise the release clause a year in advance, even though they weren't supposed to get the player until the summer. They're now trying to bring it forward um, to January, as he as he said last week. Um, and Leipzig are saying that they want between 15 and 20 million euros for that. So you're now looking at 80 million euros, best part of 80 million euros, possibly a little bit more for um, a highly rated midfielder, but still quite an inexperienced midfielder and one who, if you ask people in Germany, has has, uh, very clearly put down the tools since that that agreement was made with Liverpool and is looking after himself and, and waiting for the deal to go through. And, and let's just contrast with that with what Manchester United are trying to do. And, and Mourinho, I, I, I don't see him getting €80 million Euros to spend on the midfielder he needs in this window. I might be wrong, but he, the, the way he's operating at the moment is in the sense that he won't get that much to spend on a midfielder. Um, so the... It's an interesting dynamic in this market, and as Ian says, that Liverpool are, are pushing them. Okay, they've taken a huge amount of continuum. They've accepted what was always a realistic thing to do was to to take that money when it's on offer. But they are um, prepared to put it back out in large quantities um, on on players that Klopp wants. And I think their transfer record three times in in six months. Um, something like that. It's um, it, it's, a, it's a marked difference in where they've been for a long time. Guys, a lot has been made of Liverpool's defensive frailties. I just wondered, from your point of view, do you believe that if they were to sign Keita and obviously they've got Van Dijk, those two together, would that solve those defensive deficiencies that Liverpool have? I, I, I don't think one man makes a defence uh, and Van Dijk's okay. transfer, regardless of the value and... Um, I'd like to flag up ahead of time here. We've got a very uh, interesting, insightful interview with um, Brighton Hove Albion defender Liam Senior later in the podcast where he talks about Van Dijk's uh, transfer, the value of that, 
and how that affects a player, etc. Van Dijk won't, he'll certainly improve Liverpool's defence, um, but he won't solve their defensive problems. Uh, and certainly Keita will only, well, only I say, but you know he will augment uh, what's a very uh, prolific Liverpool attack. Uh, unfortunately, you know the old adage of as long as you score more goals than the other team, then you're going to have a successful season. Doesn't quite stack up for Liverpool and hasn't done uh, in recent years. So it's not um, Van Dijk it by no means is the these the answer to all of Liverpool's problems. But I do believe that if they did add Turan to midfield, then uh, he would certainly be a big plus in terms of protecting the back four, which is which remains fragile. Look, they, they they have to they have to replace their goal to solve all their defensive problems. They've got to replace their goalkeeper. Probably need another centre back. Um, probably need a better right back. They definitely need um, a defensive midfielder, and they they probably need a you know a change of mentality through the midfield in terms of defensive work. Um, and you know Andrew Robertson could be the answer there. He's certainly very good going forward, and certainly an improvement on. On what they've had in recent years, but you know, you're asking a lot of Virgil Van Dijk to, to to answer all those problems with one signing, in what you know is a notoriously um, fragile defence. Okay, moving on to Chelsea, guys. It was a nil-nil result last night against Arsenal, and Alvaro Morata really exploded onto the scene as going through a bit of a fallow period in front of goal. Is there any news on strikers for Chelsea? Yes, Johnny. Um, it's, it's certainly the case that, that Chelsea have been looking to add more firepower since the summer window, actually. Um, I think that Antonio Conte was uh, prepared to give Michi Batshuayi a, a chance um, uh, it, to prove himself, even though he hadn't featured very much, um, barring his, um, his effectively uh, title-winning goal last season. But um, that's proven not to have worked out. For Chelsea or for Conte or for Batshuayi. Um, I think Batshuayi, if he wants to leave in order to get game time and uh, to prove his place for the Belgian uh, team in the World Cup, then I think that, that would happen as long as Chelsea gets someone in. But what they, what they haven't found so far is a natural goal-scoring striker and instead of turned their interest to another Barcelona player who is available now for transfer, uh, interesting, Denis Suarez, a player who Barcelona actually let uh, go out with a buy-back clause uh, not so long ago, and then he was performing so well in the league that they did buy him back. Uh, he he made a, an instant impression when he got back in the team, but since has has the has fallen out uh, of uh, the team and therefore out of favour, and is now available for transfer in this window. And Suarez, young and precocious, a lot of potential. Uh, is very much in the mould of Chelsea's current attacking midfielders. By that, I mean William, Pedro and Aiden Hazard. Not an out-and-out striker, but certainly can get goals. And I think Chelsea are thinking a bit more uh, forward here rather than just a, a kind of um, a last-of-plast type solution to uh, goals uh, in for the next five months. Uh, we know that Aiden Hazard is very much on the radar of Real Madrid. We know that of all the clubs who've been spending zillions and gazillions of money uh, in the transfer market in the last six months. Weirdly, the one who, which hasn't entered yet is Real Madrid, and they have always led the market and led the agenda when it comes to breaking transfer records, etc., etc. Everyone in world football, and by that I mean 
chief executives, directors, owners, administrators, managers are expecting Real to spend very, very big next summer. And we know that contract talks on an extension for Aiden, ha- Aiden Hazard have broken down with Chelsea. There's been no agreement on a new deal. I don't think the player particularly wants to leave, but at the same time, he's been there for some time now and probably thinks about maybe a new challenge would be good and La Liga is very attractive. Real Madrid, obviously, one of the most glamorous clubs in the world. And I think the, the, the interest in Dennis Suarez for Chelsea is slightly, slightly forward-looking that the chance they may lose Hazard. Uh, he's not exactly a like-for-like replacement, clearly, because he doesn't have the experience um, nor the career that Hazard's had so far. But he's got potential again, and, and he, he may well become that kind of player. And as we know, Chelsea like to buy players young with potential who, you know, if they make it in the first team, then they're rewarded for that. If they don't, they get sold elsewhere for a profit. So look out for Dennis Suarez and Chelsea in this window. Um, Barcelona want to sell. Chelsea have got money to spend. That one I can see happening. Yeah, look, I, I think um, it's, it's been very clear ever since Michi Bacuay was signed that Antonio Conte <coughs> didn't want. And uh, Antonio Conte would like to have uh, a different kind of backup centre-forward in his squad. I'm told that Chelsea still rate Batshuayi very highly. Um, obviously, they are um, calculating on the basis that Conte will leave at the end of the season. So um, they want to retain the player and let the next manager um, try and bring him into the team. And I think maybe Chelsea are hoping that, um, that Antonio's sort of current obsession with uh, instructing a, another Premier League manager on the, the finer points of etiquette and, and how to insult individuals might, um, might bring a bit... Bring, it, bring about a bit of um, dementia senile on, on their manager's part, or as the official um, Chelsea translation is, um, amnesia. Um, <laughs> and you'll forget what he wants in the window and let them get through a window without uh, berating them in every press conference because he's got other things to, to, to moan about. If ever a, a phrase didn't need trans, translating, Duncan, it was dementia senile. Um, so yes. fair, play, fair play to Carlo Cudicini for trying to um, hoodwink the press. Oh, I'm that one. Make him try to forget all about what he just said. Yeah. Yes, when you've had a club that's had almost exclusively Latin managers for the last... Uh, ...Sanile would, uh, would uh, translate quite readily into an English press conference. Uh, Johnny, just, just to say as well, before I know we want to um, move on to what is a very um, revealing and uh, interesting interview with, with the Brighton Hove Albion defender, Liam Rossini, that we have on the transfer window today... Uh, we did flag up last week that uh, clubs in the bottom half of the Premier League uh, desperate for goals, want to buy goals. Um, we mentioned in particular West Ham and Crystal Palace. So at the same time, we should also say that, um, in fact, those two clubs ha- are currently moving into the market. Uh, and in fact, uh, are involved in a, cr- a cross-club transfer because um, Diafrasaco of West Ham uh, will most likely move to Crystal Palace for a fever and Eleven million pounds. Um, West Ham, in turn, uh, have um, looked to Fyodor Smolov, the Russia captain who currently plays at uh, Krasnodar, in a deal worth about fifteen million pounds. So, uh, as we said, we, we we did see this last week uh, in this very very crucial few months of the Premier League season when avoiding relegation uh, is paramount for clubs like West Ham and Crystal Palace. They are investing in uh, in the strikers, and indeed, I think that will continue. We'll see West Brom invest as well. We'll see Brighton invest. 
Uh, we'll probably see uh, Burnley and Huddersfield as well. So it's uh, it's going back to the uh, the whole merry-go-round. I think money's being spent more quickly and and more early in the transfer market, which makes it all, of course, all the more exciting for us and everyone listening. Uh, I'll just add that those those two deals um, with Crystal Palace and West Ham probably have a repercussion for Celtic, and that, that takes uh, away a couple of potential candidates for um, selling Moussa Dembele too. Um, I can underline that Celtic are, are keen to get Dembele out in this window. They want to make the money now if they can, but um, there's considerable resistance from Dembele about that move. And um, Why is that, Duncan? Just out of curiosity, why are they so keen to get rid of him at this stage? I think I think it's because they, they need some money in. Um, I, I'm not, by no means an expert on the, on the financial um, situation at Celtic because I don't do a great deal of reporting in Scottish football, but from what I understand, um, they need a bit of cash flow in. And, and remember, if they can take 20 million plus for Dembele, that is by some margin the biggest transfer fee the club's ever received. So it's more, I think, about capitalising on the opportunity. Um, they felt that Dembele was open to the move, which is correct, he is open to the move. But the problem they've got is that they have a player there who is looking for the long term of his career and is not going to be bounced into um, moving to the wrong club and taking a risk on the next stage of his career. Um, if he feels that's what, what Celtic are forcing upon him. And, and that, from the, the soundings I've had from people close to Mr Dembele in the past week, that's very much um, his thinking at present. Um, so they, 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 need to, they need to find a buyer who Dembele um, will say yes to, otherwise Dembele will remain for the rest of the season. Um, and let this process play out again in the summer. There are two other factors at work there, Johnny, um, which are worth mentioning briefly. Uh, first of all, uh, I, I believe that Brendan Rodgers um, thinks that Dembele's uh, form, I think is obvious, his form has dipped from the highs of last season um, in the first five months of this season. Um, I think that uh, the manager recognises that the player uh, is interested in a new challenge and hence does want to leave uh, Scottish football, and uh, also um, Dembele believes that he's got a very good shot at making the France squad for uh, the, the Summer's World Cup, and he, that if he stays at Celtic, his chances will be diminished because they are not playing Champions League after Christmas, they'll be in Europa League, um, he's not playing in what is regarded by many people in Europe, rightly or wrongly, as an inferior league, and therefore if he got a move to the Premier League in January, banged in a few goals, then he'd be very much on the radar to be included in the in the France squad for Russia. So uh, those two factors are also at play, um, as well as the ones that Duncan has explained. Ian, you keep an eye on uh, Scottish football. Do you think Moussa Dembele can make a, yeah. an immediate impact on the Premier League? I think there's every reason to believe he can. Um, he's got the physical presence. He's got pace. He's got raw potential. I think uh, he needs coaching. I think he has improved as a player under Brendan Rodgers coaching, but I think he needs to be um, coached more. So hence, I think as well, uh, what Duncan mentioned about uh, choosing the right place for him to develop his game is very important to the player. And something that I know he discusses with his agents, and in fact has confided in Brendan Rodgers as well, that he needs to move to a club where he believes he can progress uh, as a footballer 
learn his trade more and indeed obviously playing at a, a more competitive level in terms of your opponents every week, i.e. in the EPL, then his game will naturally get better. Um, and I think that's where Mr Dembele's ambitions lie. Uh, I've not heard, I mean, Monaco were mentioned, but I'm fairly certain that um, the Premier League will be his destination, his preferred destination. It's interesting that West Ham have, are, are investing um, in another striker who's, who's actually quite like-for-like like Dembele. I know they made a noted interest with Celtic for Dembele, but Smolov will cost them probably around six, seven million pounds less and is a bit older, less about potential, more about results. So um, I think that may be a, a, that's an avenue closed off, I think, for Dembele. I think look, it's you ask about Dembele's ability to make it in the Premier League. He's on the scouting lists of every Premier League club for a reason, and that's because he has those physical attributes. He has played in England um, for several years. He's, he, has, he qualifies as homegrown, which is a bonus, but he scores goals. Um, all the scouts I've spoken to about him say he's got that, those elements that are weaknesses in his game, but they're the things you've got to judge and see whether he can d- develop them once he's in the Premier League. But a player who knows the, the route to go and has the physical attributes to play in the Premier League and is 21 is always going to be attractive to Premier League clubs. The issue he has, which is an interesting thing within English football these days, is clubs are some of the top clubs can be reluctant to buy a player from Scotland or from a, uh, one of the minor leagues um, and put him straight into the Premier League. They prefer quite a lot of them to see him go to a stepping stone team like, for example, Southampton, with the acceptance that once he's proven himself at that level, they will pay four or five times the amount they would have done if they'd taken him straight from Celtic. Um, but that takes the risk out of the deal for them. And that, again, it's, you know, it's a factor of how much money there is in the Premier League that the top clubs can run their transfer policy that way and, and take, you know, be prepared to take big hits on players, even though, even though they consider them to be potential players for them in the, in the future. Okay, moving on, we've already trailed it. And in a transfer window exclusive, we talked to Premier League fullback Liam Rossignor about VAR, his media work, and of course, a player's perspective of the transfer window. Delighted to say we're now joined by uh, Brighton Hove Albion defender Liam Rossignor. Um, and Brighton Hove Albion, of course, were this week uh, one of the teams involved in English football's first competitive trial of video assisted referee in their FA Cup third round tie against Crystal Palace. And Liam, I'd like to start off by asking you was there um, any feeling in addressing that this was a different kind of game, that in some way you guys were under more scrutiny? Uh, obviously, beforehand there was was talk of it, but at the same time we um, we're always concentrating on, on the job that we have to do. Um, and what was good was that we had a meeting about a week or so before with Mike Riley, who was head of the referees committee, who explained all of the rules and and determined basically what the outcomes would be if there was a penalty decision to be made or or a goal that might have been offside. And that really helped us just be able to focus on the task in hand. And regarding, I mean, you were on the bench for for Monday night's game. Um, I was at the game as well, and I, one of the things that I felt was that there was a sense of kind of anticipation in the crowd, um, yeah. but also of the, the one decision clearly which uh, looked as if it might be subject to the VAR was Glenn Murray's winning goal. Yeah. And um, of course, when the, the ball went in, I think the crowd were kind of looking to the big screens, hoping for a replay to find out whether or not there was going to be VAR. Was that the, the sense you got as well? 
Yeah, I think that's one of going to be one of the teething in problems is that I think a lot of people are going to start looking for it to be used when, in fact, it's only in case of an obvious error or a, a big judgment call that is clearly wrong. I think the uh, the replay showed that it was a it was a clear goal, and I think that's why there wasn't a VAR replay. And I think that's one of the problems moving forward with with VAR is you're going to have a lot of players asking for it when goals go against them and supporters waiting in anticipation of of something new. So um, I understand that we want to help referees as much as possible. They're under huge pressure already, and um, it's going to be interesting to see as if it if it continues. What's your general feeling about it? Before it came in, Liam, were you? Were you? I, I remember you were at Fulham when um, Chris Coleman sort of started to push yes. for, for VAR. I think referees need all the help they can get. You know, the Premier League now is pro- pro- possibly the biggest in the world. Um, so much money riding on games, people's managers' jobs on the lines, players' contracts on the lines, and I think that pressure is 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 magnified on the referee because if he makes a bad call, he is the first point of of scrutiny, and and we need to help them. They're only human. So anything that can help within making the game fluid and making the game, keeping the game the game that we love, I, th- I think it's a, a positive thing. And, and hopefully um, VAR will prove to be really useful in helping them. Obviously, the decision that was given um, against pass was correct. And so in that sense, VAR did its job, um, i.e. there was no challenge to the decision. There was no stop in the game. Um, yeah. Would that come as a bit of a relief? Uh, yeah, albeit the fact obviously you, you, well, the team went through as well we, were, we scored the winning goal so, <laughs> yeah. um, but you know I think again you, you see I was looking at the Crystal Palace players on the bench uh, the manager Roy Hodgson they were clearly asking for it to be looked over again and I think the, the, like I said it was proven that it was a correct decision and I think that's the only point of controversy you're going to get is when people are actually asking for it to use when it in fact shouldn't be so I think when people get used to what VAR is actually there for um, then we'll see more of a, of a calmness around the whole thing. And, um, and I hopefully, like I said, I hope it improves the game because the referees need all the help they can get. I think, I think there was a general consensus that the decision was right, but it, it seemed watching it wasn't absolutely clear because we only had one angle that we saw on TV. And it, and it was, I saw Mark Bright complaining on Twitter afterwards saying that the, <laughs> the, you know, the Crystal Palace in their boardroom, I know, I know Hodgson said otherwise, but Crystal Palace in the boardroom felt it was questionable. And that, yeah. That's kind of my concern with VAR. Is but I think a... it goes to show how difficult it actually is for a referee. You know, we have the mm. benefit of replays and people are still trying to make up their minds of whether it's a goal or not. The referee at the time, he's got one decision to make. The game has ha- happened so quickly. And the fact that they have someone, they have that almost that comfort and security knowing there's someone watching the replays if anything was to go wrong. I think that's a benefit to our game. And I think it was proven right in the the case of of our game against Crystal Palace. So VR, I'm sure we'll see a lot more of in the future, Liam. But um, obviously the transfer window is now open and being a man inside a a Premier League club dressing room, um, can you give us a little bit of insight what that's like? Is that you guys... When you get training in the morning, obviously you've watched, uh, you know, television. You've read the papers. You've been online. Is there a bit of excitement about who might or might not be coming in, or even players going out? No, obviously there is always talk of who could be going in, but there's always a trepidation and a fear of maybe the club are bringing someone in to take your place, or maybe you can get that call. I, I've I've moved on on deadline day on a transfer in a transfer window, and I had no idea I was going to be moving. So as a player, that that security's not there whenever a transfer window's open. But getting a, a, a signing in can really lift the, lift the football club and lift the dressing room, especially if it's a player that players have played against, they respect him as a player. It can make a huge difference in, in giving confidence and, and help to the squad. 
And what was it like, Louis, if you got deadline day? I mean, that seems to me to be quite a sort of bit of traumatic almost, given that you've got family and children and yeah, you, that, there's a lot of it. things to consider. Yeah, definitely. I think as footballers, that's something that we're always pretty wary of. You know, it's um, I got a call on the on the morning of deadline day saying I was um, an, an offer had been accepted by Reading, and could I go up there and do the medical and 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 talk personal terms. And I think people outside the game think that as players we know the ins and outs of every transfer deal, and we're just like we're just like the fans. We only find out sometimes even when a player t- comes in to do his medical, we only know when we see him there in the flesh. And then it spreads around the training ground like wildfire was signing such and such a player. So we're, we're in the dark. And I think we have to be in the dark because clubs don't want to um, show their hands of who, who they're trying to sign with agents and things like that. So, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's just as um, exciting and unpredictable for us as it is for the supporters. Yeah, I was going to say, Liam, when, when you moved like that and you weren't aware about it until the, to the morning it happened, did you have the option to say you didn't want to take that move and, and did the club who were moving you put pressure on you to... Yeah, no, I had the option, but the club, the, when a club accepts an offer for you, it's pretty much a, please go. You know, you know that you're not really part of the <laughs> yeah. club anymore. And um, there was a little bit of pressure uh, uh, in terms of moving. Um, and it was something I had to have a quick conversation with my wife, Erica, and um, we decided it was the right thing to do. So, yeah, it's, it, that's one of... Uh, I'm privileged to be a professional footballer. I love being a footballer, but that's one of the, the hard things of the game is that lack of security. You've got kids in school or you're happy, you're close to your family, and all of a sudden you're 200, 300 miles away in a hotel um, going to work. So it can change just like that. And Liam, I think all of us were you know, a little bit stunned by the uh, Neymar transfer in the summer window. Um Things don't seem to have let up very much in this window, especially in this country. We've had Virgil van Dijk move for seventy-five million, and obviously Philippe Coutinho moved to Barcelona for one hundred and forty-six. Are you are you surprised that football can sustain this this kind of level of financing, or is it just something you see as a natural involvement? I think it's a natural involvement. I think with the the amount of money that owners um, have in terms of the top of our game now, you know, they they seem to have unlimited funds when it comes to transfers. And what that does, it pushes the market and the prices of players up and it pushes the wages up because they're competing against each other for the best players in the world. And then beyond that, you now see a, um, a big rise in, in transfer fees for, for players below that level as well because the market dictates that. And one thing I always say to people when they speak about transfer fees is that the actual quality of the player doesn't change. It's just the market that dictates the whole fee. And um, it seems to be a big media... Um, involvement in, in speaking of transfer fees and wages and agents when I'd like there to be more um, more concentration on the actual game itself and, and enjoying the actual game of football because that's what it's all about at the end of the day. When you speak about the amounts of money that are involved now with, with players, it puts a pressure on those players who they don't ask to be paid the money that they're paid or for, play, for clubs to spend the money that they do on them. They're normal guys who, who their job happens to be professional footballers and there's a disengagement between supporters and players because the amounts of money that we're now talking is so far removed from, from everyday life. Can you imagine the, um, we were talking about this in the podcast last week with Virgil van Dijk and suggesting that there's a, a large amount of additional pressure involved in that move because Liverpool's defensive problems have been so much yeah. in the, under highlight for the last sort of year and a half. And then you get that record fee on top and he's kind of expected to be a, almost a, a messiah to them to exactly. come in and, well, scoring, a, scoring on your home day boy, <laughs> the cop against your local rivals is, is a good way to put an end to that. But, um, no, That's I a good point. The media <laughs> d- dictates a lot with, with footballers. I see more and more players, um, I'm watching analysis of games and players are getting called out and 
for poor performances and there's there's nowhere to hide now and and that comes again with the transfer fee and, and the wages that are spoken about but it does put a lot of pressure on players and it does affect them on the pitch and um, that's something that players are going to have to be mentally um, tough enough to deal with in, in this day and age Sorry, is that so, something you talk about in the dressing room the, the change in the punditry? In fact we do, you know because we know we, we, we've been live on Sky a few times and I'm sure there's a few players going up thinking if I make a mistake here if I have a stinker um, Gary Neville's going to be commentating on me at half time in front yeah. of millions of people so yeah, it does affect players and we're, we're human. Like I said, we're just normal guys who happen to do a job that we love and, and get paid very well for it. But to say, if you take it all the way back to who we are, we're just like the man on the street or, or the supporter watching the game. You mentioned disengagement, Liam, which I think is, a, is a very much a, um, something which is a problem uh, in, in modern football and, and certainly with the fees and stuff. Is there anything you think that can be done to, to try and rebridge that gap between players and the fans and and by that I'm not talking about financially but you know it, yeah. it, in some way maybe um, something can be done wh- whereby people understand that you are human and that players are the same as your man in the street just that they happen to do a very elite job. Yeah well from from my personal point of view I started writing a column in The Guardian um, trying to do more in the media and um, try and get out in the community as well and, and meet children in schools. I think at the top clubs there's almost uh, there's almost a fear of the media there's a fear of, of exposure. And I think if we can break that down, I think supporters actually become closer to players and you have that same kind of mentality. I remember when my dad was playing after a game at West Ham in the top division, he'd go in the players' lounge and he'd have a pint with the fans and talk about the game. You know, those times have long gone. And, and I'd hope that we can get that engagement back because I think it would be better for the whole game in general. How, how's the reception been to your column, um, Liam? Have you, have you found that writing it and, and feedback from fans and I, I guess you probably get a fair amount of social media from the feedback. Yeah, no, it's been, it's been great. You know, I didn't know what it was going to be like when I started. Um, but no, the, I've, I've had people come up to me in the street and I expect them to talk about football when they say what a good column I'm writing. So I think I need to change my job title. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, it's been, it's been really good and, and hopefully things like that and, and maybe other players, I see other players now, I think Peter Crouch has started doing oh. one. Um, and, and other players see that it can be a benefit and it can be good for them and good for supporters as well. Well, Liam Senior, columnist, TV star <laughs> and star fullback, thank you very much for joining the uh, Transfer Window podcast and we wish you um, all the best for the rest of the season and look forward to maybe speaking to you again at some point. Yeah, no, absolute pleasure. Thank you, guys. Pleasure to speak to you. Thanks, Liam. OK, that's fascinating stuff. I hope you enjoyed that. We're going to move on to a very special quickfire round this week. At Anfield, we've got Liverpool against Manchester City. So what we're going to do is I combine the loving, and each of the guys is, has picked what they think will be uh, the, the lineups in a 4-3-3 formation. And I'm going to put to the guys which two players should fit in the position. So it'll, it'll make sense once we start. I hope you guys understand what I'm saying and hope the listeners do too. So we'll start with you, Duncan. Goalkeeper, first position. Ederson or Mignolet? Well, that, that's got to be one of the easiest choices of the lot. Um, I think it has to be Ederson or um, Richard Keogh, as he's known in the Manchester United dressing room after um, the Milkgate finale to the uh, Manchester Derby. <laughs> as long as it wasn't Richard Keyes. Okay, Ian, at left back, we've got Fabian Delph or Andy Robertson, Scotland's own. Scotland's own, every time. I think Robertson's been a massive improvement to the Liverpool team. Uh, and also, uh, I think uh, Delph obviously is is not a natural left back. Although he's done quite well there. Okay, Duncan, right back, 
Kyle Walker or Alexander Arnold? Um, I, I like a right back who has some some sort of knowledge about how he should defend. So I'd have to go for Kyle Walker there. Ian, John Stones or Ragnar Clavin? Now, given John Stones' recent aberrations, that's a difficult one. More difficult than it should be, Johnny. Uh, but I'll stick with Stones. I'll, I'll have faith and say John Stones over Clavan. Duncan, Otamendi or Van Dijk? Look, Otamendi has been so improved this season that he now has Pep Guardiola describing him as Superman. But um, you've, you've got to go for Virgil van Dijk in, in that um, one-on-one. Ian, midfields, uh, Chan or Fernandinho? Oh, definitely Fernandinho. He's a sensational season, earned a new deal. Uh, Chan, I think, you know, the old favourite. He, he turns slower than an oil tanker. So in this game, I think Fernandinho will be prevalent. Duncan, do we want the energy of Wijnaldum or the creativity of Silva? <laughs> you have to take David Silva. He's not, not just creativity. He's, uh, he'll, he'll foul for you all over the pitch as well. Intelligence. Um, yeah, he's one of the best players in the Premier League. Ian, I'm almost embarrassed to ask this. Kevin De Bruyne or Adam Alana? <laughs> Go from the Zlatan you know option. Johnny, I think Adam Lallana would be embarrassed if you asked him that. Uh, De Bruyne. Duncan, tough one here. Sani or Manny? Um, Sani on current form. I think it would be, if you were to do it last season, it would be the other way around for sure. But um, Sani's having an exceptional season. Has come on a long way and uh, very important to that system. Guardiola plays where the wingers score a lot of the goals. Ian, Salah or Sterling? Now, there's, there's the one difficult one, probably. Johnny, you've, you've, you've just managed to scupper me on there. Both players playing out their skin, scoring goals. Look, I think on goal scoring alone, um, we've got to go with Salah. I think Salah's been a sensation for Liverpool and for the Premier League. Uh, one of the few players outside of the Manchester City team, I think a lot of neutral fans would pay to watch. And Duncan, to complete our start and line-up, Aguero or Firmino? Um, both of them are very wasteful strikers. Seems a strange thing to say about a guy like Sergio Aguero who's scored so many goals, but that's the big frustration with Pep Guardiola is that he gets lots of chances and doesn't put enough of the simple ones in the net. But choosing between those two, you've got to choose Sergio Aguero. So any goodwill we built up with uh, Liverpool fans has now been destroyed as we only have three Liverpool players in that lineup. Yeah, I think that's fair. Johnny, I, th- I think most Liverpool fans would, would probably agree. I know they're um, you know, incredibly loyal uh, to their own players and everything else, but the way Manchester City are playing right now, I think three Liverpool players, especially two in the defence, I think they might actually be quite chuffed with that. What, what's your general take on the game and how it's going to go on uh, Sunday? Well, I, 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 I expect and we hope it's going to be you know, attacking and uh, the kind of game um, that we saw between Chelsea and Arsenal in the league uh, uh, last week when it was 2-2, but it was literally end-to-end. It was a bit like a basketball match. It would be lovely to see that because you've got two very attack-minded teams. What I think tactically will happen is something different. I don't think that either club will go out on the front foot. It will be a bit cagey. Um, and I think that you know the onus will be on Liverpool to attack and etc, etc. But uh, I, I do hope for a, a very sort of uh, entertaining game, and I reckon there'll probably be at least four goals. That, although I'm not going to state where they're going to be. I think I think it's a very interesting test of Klopp because um, you know, I mentioned the the, the five nil game earlier in the season, where um, I, look defensively both sides weren't good in that match, 
Uh, Manchester City have improved a lot defensively since then. But Liverpool were wide open in midfield, as Kevin De Bruyne pointed out. So you, you want to see how Klopp responds to that and changes his setup accordingly. And um, maybe there's an example from the Manchester United uh, Liverpool game or the Liverpool Man United game at Anfield, I should say, where um, Liverpool were notably more cautious in midfield and much more careful about um, covering uh, United's counterattacks in that game and made it made it more difficult for them. So, so Klopp is capable of doing it. I think he has to do it against Manchester City, but it'll be interesting to see if, exactly how he implements that. Okay, I'm going to go for a three-three draw and a classic. That's all from us this week. As always, gentlemen, thanks very much for joining me. You can continue the debate on Twitter by contacting the guys at Duncan Castles and Garbo SJ. If you want to get the pod as soon as it becomes available, please subscribe at iTunes or Audio Boom. Thanks for listening.